Jenko. How are you, Jenko? What's up, Carlo? How are you? I'm good. Rainy day in East Texas. Cold and rainy. I've got Mo here. I want to bring him up. Um, very cool. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. I don't know how long we'll have to go, but we can get some really cool topics in. I know there's a couple of different... There's a uh, federal roundtable um, that they're putting on, and I know that there's a couple other spaces going on, on that focus on the law, but I want to get this one recorded because we had time with my friend Mo, who, who was so cool to join. Kind of active... MFR, I want to um, give you space, Carlo, to do our intro, and then I'll intro him. And I want to kind of get his take on Web three, his his thoughts on NFTs, and I mean somebody who's been deep in the space for for a while now, some perspective, and then we can talk about the patent process and some insights and just things that that he's familiar with. Thanks, very Love cool. It. Thanks, man. All right. Well, welcome everyone to Lex Line, episode 110 of Lex Line, brought to you by Rug Radio, hosted by yours truly, Carlo and Jenko. We talk about new and emerging legal trends in Web3, crypto, and blockchain law. As always, nothing we talk about should be considered legal or financial advice. If you have a specific legal question, consult a lawyer licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction and don't do it on a recorded Twitter space. Talk to a lawyer confidentially because we record these. If you come up and speak, it's going to be shared across our many platforms, including iTunes podcasts and Spotify. With that being said, Jenko, I'm thrilled to have a guest today, and I'm going to hand it over to you to make the intro, and then I want to sit back and learn, because not an area that I practice in, and I'm curious to see how patents will overlap with Web3 and what opportunities that presents. So yeah, thanks, no further man. ado, Jenko. Yeah, I'm super excited. Mo, what's up, man? GM. GM, GM. How are y'all doing? Ray and Carlo. Got Fugio in the crowd and Tim in the crowd. Uh, good yeah, good, to, good to fucking catch up with y'all. It's been a long time. This dude hosts with um, Nier on Thursday night, so we need to we need to support that. I didn't realize that, that Jess and, and Mo have a have a weekly gig. Mo, is that the little one in the back? Love yeah, it. I got a little one. Uh, she's a Web3 baby. She's been here for the whole ride. Uh, I work from home, uh, thankfully, so uh, um, I didn't take parental leave for a long time until she, about, she was about like four months old. And then I took all of my parental leave, got three months. Uh, thank you. Thank you to the federal government for that. And uh, Oh, that's a cool way to game right? it. Wait, wait it out. Very if you cool. have one baby a year, you only have to work three quarters of the year. <laughs> that's just the math. I just ran the math. That's just math. That's just math. I mean, you're spitting facts. Talk to me about. The problem is you're only going to sleep three quarters of the year. <laughs> yeah, you run out of time pretty quick. <laughs> How did you land here? How did you come to learn non-fungible token? Man. Um, where did you first – what was that first feeling like? Okay, that's a great question. It's a kind of a funny story. So, you know, I've been browsing the Instagrams. I was browsing the Facebooks. And uh, your boy Gary V, you know, was like, buy CryptoPunks, buy this, buy that. And I'm like, what are these people like? They're buying pictures online? He, you know, and I – Were you on the call with, with – with all the rich folks or was it when he posted after the rich folks? Oh, it was early. I mean, he was shilling them early, early, early. I mean, this is early 2020, uh, probably late 2020, early 2021. 
and uh, which again, this is like when board apes are, you know, first minting. This is where before the doodles men, before Invisible Friends. I mean, this is really early, early in the space. And you know, I faded it. I just was like, no, nah, it's not for me. It's kind of ridiculous. And uh, I went to go trade, you know, uh, the crap coins and you know ETH and Bitcoin. And I was able to to get ETH pretty early, um, or at least somewhat early. I bought in at like $111 was my major uh, buy of ETH. And uh, so, so you know, I was in the space, and 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 my friend came out and told me about Rare Pepe's, one of my best friends in uh, in real life, and. At that point, you know, rare pepes were really expensive. There's a lot of stuff going on. Emblem Vault hadn't gotten their stuff together, so it was really hard to, like, uh, go through that catalog and figure out which cards were real and which cards were fake, and there was fractionalized NFTs. And so I just figured, you know what, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to go buy Gary Vee's NFT. Well, I go look at that. That floor price is, like, six ETH. You know, you got to remember, ETH is, like, four grand, 4,800 at this time. That was too expensive. So I was just in the Discord, and he started shilling projects. You know, he started shilling brain vomit, so I bought um, Flower Girls, which I bought. I still hold those projects. Um, not all the tokens that I bought, but I still hold those two projects today. Um, that was my first entry into the NFT space. And then uh, started seeing gas. Before you, before you yeah. move on, what attract, like when you're like, eh, I fade it, I don't, I'm not, I don't get it. And then you're like, okay, Gary's talking about it. So was it that legitimate people started paying attention to it or did you see something different the second time no it had application it, it had wise? to be that feeling of i missed out you know uh Got everyone it. else is doing this my friends are doing this my friends are I've been early on this and now here i am you heard of it yep. and then your friend talks to you about rare pepes and you're like and then i i was here. i saw real money i saw real dollar signs being moved around and that's really what kind of you know dropped me into like what is an nft right like what 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 is it any different than a regular token and the best way that i can describe it to anyone who asks is you know if i send you a bitcoin and it mixes with my five bitcoins that i have in my wallet and i send you you know half a bitcoin back or i send you a bitcoin back did i send you my first bitcoin or my fifth bitcoin did i send you my fourth bitcoin it's hard to tell right it's it's impossible to know which coin that i really give you um with nfts you know smart contract labels each coin uh, individually so i can easily determine you know, which asset that is. Now, it took me a while to realize, you know, NFTs aren't just pictures. Um, they could be anything, right? I mean, it's just it's just a smart contract that points to some, you know, server or has some mathematical data to, you know, configure a picture. Um, and then I realized, you know, well, you know, Bitcoin solves uh, the problem of, you know, traditional payment rails. You know, the traditional payment rails take like 48 hours for money to physically move from point A to point B, Bitcoin solves that by like eight minutes. Ethereum solves that by like, what, 15 seconds or eight seconds or something. So uh, NFTs then solve the problem of digital ownership, of flexing stuff. So people like to wear Rolexes in real life. You know, you don't buy a Rolex to tell time. You buy a Rolex to flex. Um, I think there's going to be a day and a time, you know, in the future where people are going to want to digitally flex. And what's the best way decentralized uh, to trade assets and verify that those assets really move from point A to point B and to verify those assets are legit. You know, uh, I think NFTs really solve that. Um, you see that as culturally important, the ability to kind of flex digitally. Yes. I think it's going to get more and more important as things go on. Uh, I don't think people really value their profile picture. Um, but I think eventually, you know, once it gets more socially accepted that 
uh, a profile picture can have value, I think people will start to value that. You know, if we start hanging out in, in uh, like the metaverse of Facebook and there are digital assets that make it look like you're early or that you were, uh, you're rich or that, you know, you're in this group. Like, I think people are going to want to virtue signal to each other um, to, to try to find each other. Do you think it goes zero to a hundred kind of straight up or is it kind of horizontal where wherever I can envision a, a timeline where maybe it's not crypto punks or whatever. Maybe it's just, I like football. So this is my, or MF or like it, uh, very fractured cultures using digital identity as a flex within that horizontal ecosystem where one isn't better than the other. It's just like different tastes and different activities. Yeah, I, I think we'll definitely break out into subcultures, but I think uh, as a whole, it's going to be a random walk with a general uptrend um, when it comes to the adoption of uh, Web3 practices. Whether you know you're interacting with the Web3 contract or not, that may change. Like Starbucks, for example, right? They have the rewards program on the Polygon network. No one that uses that reward program knows that they're dealing with Polygon at all, you know, but they're using it. Uh, Instagram's coming out and doing the same thing. Reddit came out and used Polygon doing the same thing. Um, do they know, you know, that they're using blockchain? You know, eventually you can get to that, that base layer. Uh, but, but I think the mass adoption will come when, when you're not using your wallet, you don't have to connect. It's just kind of happening kind of in the background. That's a lot of folks have said that a lot of smart people have said that. Um, I want to take time. Well, before we switch gears, where do you think it's going? Like, can this sustain? Is it going to be the subculture of like our subcultures and communities that have become institutions going to adopt Web3? Or is it just going to be MFers and other folks and rec guy who like come like Web3 native? Can it be can it expand? It can or do you think it has to be? behind a Starbucks reward program where they don't understand what they're doing yeah. or will the under, can the understanding expand? I think there, I think the, the true expansion will happen when people are interacting with the blockchain and not re realizing they're interacting with the blockchain. But I think there will always be a space for the people who want to really take a, take a deep dive. And uh, like we meant from websites all the time. There are, there are people who meant from smart contracts, right? And that's just like one extra step of doing the same exact thing. And I think that there will be people who, um, you know, value the earlier stuff, uh, whether it's art, whether it's uh, these alpha passes, whether it's, you know, uh, getting access to an ecosystem. Um, I think, I think there, there will be value for that. But I don't think all NFTs are the same. I and mean, we have NFTs, which are, I consider fraternities, right? And I would consider like MFers as one of those. It's like a frat. Um, a lot of communities are like that. A lot of PFP projects are like that. You're buying it so that other people know that you're with them. Uh, some some of them are access tokens, right? Like it's an alpha pass or it's a ticket to uh, VCon, right? Um, some of them are one of one pure art, just art, just digital art, right? With nothing else, you know, um, out of it. So I don't think all NFTs kind of fall in the same the same thing. But the main goal of NFTs is to verify digital ownership. It's all the, the only problem you're solving is verifying digital ownership. And that unlocks a lot of applications. I appreciate the time you're giving us when you're with 
your little one when you need to wrap it up. Yeah, just, no just let me know. Who, by the um, way, is being a trooper. Thanks. Amazing. Yeah. She's a good Web3 yeah. baby. She does coo every now and again. She's found her voice over the last week. But thank you for being patient with her. That's really cool. Um, talk to me about we've had a conversation that's gone over a year now. Patent process sounds kind of some people assume it's black and white some people assume it's um straightforward as far as the examiner and the people in the position to make decisions it can be weaponized though and we saw an example of that and uh uh, with this ens case i don't know where you want to start but i don't want to ask a question that puts you on a lesser important topic so i kind of want to have it open-ended what happened with this unstoppable domain application and how does that fit within the context of the actual process, which can be gamed? That is a great question. Um, wow. All right. The patent, the patent process is you have to understand that. And when examiner gets a case, they have two options, allow the case, Right, and send out a notice of allowance or to send out a notice of rejection, either a non-final or a final rejection, depending on where you are in the patent prosecution process. Now, as an examiner, I cannot send out a uh, I cannot send out a rejection unless I have proof, right? And in order for there to be proof, there needs to be documentation. And I have to be able to find that documentation, right? So in the case of the unstoppable domains patent. Uh, that was granted, that is public. Um, what I think may have happened is that, you know, an examiner got this case. They're not very familiar with Web3 technology. They're not very familiar with blockchain technology. The space as a whole doesn't really publish a lot of information publicly, right? And when we, me and you first started our conversations, there were maybe 100, I want to say it was less than 150 patent applications that were filed uh, with the word blockchain in it. Just period. Uh, a lot of people were, quote unquote, building out on the space, but no one wanted, you know, we were still in the vein of decentralization and no one really wanted to protect their IP because they're thinking they're going to be building for the next person. It's just sadly not the way the world works. And, you know, when you realize how the system is played, people are going to take advantage of that system. And in this case, someone files an application. The examiner goes and searches, probably does the best search that they can do. Doesn't know where to look for this information. Isn't familiar with what is happening on a day-to-day in the blockchain technology is not able to provide proof in a written office action towards the applicant. So what choice do they have other than to allow the application, right? We don't allow the applications based on our feelings or what we think. We base our applications based on, or we, we respond based on facts. And if we can't put the facts together because it's not articulated, then, you know, you run into issues, which I think is what happened in this case. What are the ramifications of this happening? Because it seems like a very straightforward software technology that's easily explainable that got I think that's where you get it. Easily explainable. That's the art, right? The art is putting in the application where the reader is like, oh, this is pretty straightforward. But really, you're threading a needle with the language. And so you're not tipping them off where to look. A hundred percent. That definitely that definitely happens. Um how many examiners know that hit that GitHub is a thing, right? Like how many, oh, wow. right? how many, like, I'm sure that they just don't, 
at the patent office, we are given databases to look forward to or look through. Okay, and we use text searches, we use classification searches, we uh, are able to search the non-patent literature, which is everything outside of, you know, our database. What usually ends up happening, though, is that most of our searches are within our database. It's the, it's the low-hanging fruit. It's the place where we get dinged if something is found or uh, is found when you say it's not found. Right. So if I were to allow an application in order to go to, you know, my uh, supervisor or to review it and they were able to find a document that's in this pile that I did not find, but I was supposed to look through this pile and didn't see it, then I would be dinged for it. Right. But if it's outside of that and it just it belongs on, you know, a GitHub website that, you know, you have to create a wallet to be able to access, you know, this website and examiners aren't given wallets to access these websites, then then how are they able to get to that information? You know, if the examiner has never made a uh, ENS account, when you see something that is written in a way that it, that goes against all of Web2 and all of the patent literature that is in his or hers, uh, uh, you know, the universe there. Of documents. Exactly. And, and, and that really falls on two things is, you know, the patent office isn't giving the patent office doesn't know what it doesn't know. Right. So so, yes, it's supposed to stay on top of the inventions. But again, we we look through what other people have priorly or have disclosed. So once, you know, that backlog of cases started to be filed, we can look through those and see what information's out there to go outside. You'd almost have to know where you're looking for. And I think it's just a solvable you know, issue. Now, it doesn't mean that this patent has now been granted and that's the end all be all. I mean, there are checks and balances in the system. Um, one thing is that, you know, it could be brought to applicants, the, the, the owner's attention, and they can file something called a uh, request for continued examination, where they can actually withdraw that, uh, that allowance. You, you essentially be, you'd be asking for re-reviewing. Yep, yep. You'd ask for a request for a continued examination after an allowance. You know, it's just, you would pay the, you'd pay the fees associated with it. You'd get pulled. It would have a new round of examination, just like it would land it on your desk day one. Um, and, and we get those all the time. Uh, I get those where I, you know, I've allowed an application and uh, the applicant has found more prior art that they want to, to have on the face of the patent. So w when you get a patent granted, all of the prior art documents that is cited and that applicant cites and the examiner cites are, are printed on that front page of the patent. May go to the second page, depending on how many references were disclosed. But all of those are disclosed. Maybe you want those. Can you define those terms for us quickly? The prior art, yeah. art you've done it for me before, yeah. and you're the source yeah. for my knowledge. Okay. So I don't no, want to feel no. like I know it, but at least that's a great it. question. Sorry, it's a great question. And how it plays into the application. Yep, yep. So by law, um, uh, information that has been out for more than a year, okay, is not patentable. That's important to know. That is the patent bar that is set is information can be you can keep it with uh, to yourself for a year or or you can disclose it to the public. And within a year, you can file for your application. But once it's known for more than a year, it's over. OK, uh, that was the 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 bar up until 2013. Uh, time is flying. OK, I, I'm looking at it now. It's like nine years ago, but it seems like it was just yesterday. We we're being trained on this. And. Uh, they changed something. Uh, the Congress passed something called the America Invents Act, and that changed it to first inventor to file. It used to be first inventor to invent. So we could argue in court who invented first. It got kind of hairy. 
I'm, as you can you know expect, people just making up documents or making up proof and clogging up the system. So then they, you know, they came out and said, no, first person to file wins. So my job as a patent examiner, when you file an application, I go search all of the known disclosures that is relevant. We, can, we call that prior art. Prior art is anything that I can use to reject your application that meets, that is, that is filed before uh, your effective filing date. Okay, that, that also gets hairy because you can file something called a provisional application, which is essentially a, pl a placeholder until you file something called a non-provisional application. Um, but essentially, you, you file to the patent office. You have a date in which you file. When I go search your application, I'm trying to find anything disclosed before that date. Anything that's disclosed before that date that is relevant to your case, I consider prior art. Um, if there are things where, like, if... Uh, if it is before, but it's commonly owned, you know, I may cite it and you say, well, that's not prior art because it's commonly owned. And I'm like, oh, well, it is the dates before. So it is prior, but it's not considered art because you all, you know, commonly own it. And there are little things that come up from that. But the main gist is you file on a certain date. I'm trying to beat you by finding that knowledge out there in the world that was disclosed before your filing date. And if I'm able, if I'm able to piece together an obvious way to add, you know, uh, element A to element B and say, let's give you a better example. Uh, Carlo, Carlo goes and he invents the pencil. He's the inventor of the pencil, okay? And Ray invents the eraser, all right? It's completely separately. I came in here and I thought, man, like it'd be kind of cool to put the pencil on the eraser, right? So the person who gets that case has to go look and say, did Ray ever invent, like, envision putting an eraser on something? And then I got to go look at Carlo and say, did Carlo ever envision that his pencil would have something on it that would erase? And if I can't find anyone that said or alluded to that it would be obvious, or not, don't say it's obvious, just say that, like, hey, we've thought about putting, you know, erasable pencils, you know, but it's not a pencil here. In this case, it's an erasable uh, paintbrush right? It's an eraser on a paintbrush. Then I would say, hey, look, like this, this dude invented the paper, the pencil, this dude invented the eraser. This third person says, look, this is a paintbrush that is erasable. It's easy, you know, to put an erasing mechanism on top of a writing tool is obvious. I can make that argument to y'all. Uh, then you would argue back, oh, it's not obvious. That, that's what they pay the big bucks for the lawyers to do, is to argue back, oh, it's not obvious. It's not obvious. And there's a dialogue there. Um, once I, you know, you reach a person and you say, oh, oh, well, no, that eraser is actually attached by uh, these divots. You know, it's not glued on. It's kind of like press fit on. And I go look, and I'm like, no one's ever press fit anything on the back of a writing utensil. Boom. Granted, Pat, you know, just but it's not because I wanted to. It's because I couldn't find it. So did this unstoppable domains patent application sort of fall through that crack where there wasn't obvious art out there that that jumped out that's and would have been a basis to that's deny? the only thing that i can reason that's the hypothesis yeah. potentially can we get into um and i i want to invite a few folks from the audience up so so we'll talk another 10 minutes probably and then we'll we'll open up to questions um i i, I i'm curious Okay, so there's a there's an appeals process. Others can come in. It's not final. Um, what if there's a subsequent application right now while that appeals process is being played out? 
would it w- could it get tripped up like what if what if the, the ENS applied should they apply or should they try and block what was granted so if ENS e- ENS applying and having a later filing date would have no bearing in that throws them right off because they're exactly. a, it's, a, it's a later what to you file. could do it's a first to file is you could you could complain to the patent trial and appeal board and you could provide them with the documents and say you know you've granted this application but you know the examiner didn't find prior art in this case we have found the prior art that examiner should have used right and they could force you know a request for continued examination so it is possible no. to, but you would have to you would have, excuse me a second sorry it'd be extraordinary circumstances it seems that's that's remarkable um is there a time limit to bring that there is not a term limit from my understanding but do not quote me on that there is not a term limit to bring that and and that might be left for the litigators exactly and and it would not be the first time that it's happened and it won't be the last time that it's happened you know for patents get through the system all the time i mean as patent examiners, we don't have free, you know, willy-nilly time to, like, do these cases, right? We have a certain amount of hours to do a case. Where I'm at today, it should take me about eight hours to do a non-final. So that means I'm pushing out one a day. That means I'm seeing your application, and I'm making a decision whether you're getting a patent or not in one day. In the same when, day. When you have spent your whole life working on this, or months, or years, trying to understand an invention, I have to wrap my mind around it and search the art and write up the application and send it out to you, you know, in a certain time period. So we, we are not given, like, it, 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 there are things that are going to fall through the cracks. It is not the end of the world. And there's checks and balances, you know, for that. To, to counterbalance. Exactly. To wrap up, what is the, from your point of view, the purpose and function of patents? As nice. we kind of go into this new world, I want to kind of recenter ourselves on that first principle yeah. as we debate and discuss and shape how it should happen. So where do you see the purpose and rationale and, and value? So, so you get a patent to protect yourself from your competitors. That's the whole point. I mean, the same, you get a, a trademark to protect your brand. You get a copyright to protect your works of art, right? Whether it's uh, music, written uh, books, uh, or art, you know, like pictures and whatnot. Right. And then you get a patent to protect your inventive concepts. So if you have a new way of making art that no one else has thought of, get a patent. If you have a new way of, of minting stuff on manifold, you know, you should try to work on, you know, if you can find a way to get that patented. If you have a new machine that comes out, right. You should try to get that patented. I'm a big proponent of, you know, patents being used to protect the little guy. Now I know that the big guys have more money and they're able to, you know, uh, maybe throw more money at the problem. But you got to remember the patent office has like a reverse fee structure. So the people who are the biggest pay the most and the people who are the smallest pay the least. So I want to say like if if you are a normal entity, a large entity, you're paying like a thousand dollars in the very beginning. Right. For that, for um, a small entity, which is like a company that has less than 500 employees and makes a certain amount of money, um, they pay $500. If you're a micro entity, like you're a normal pro se applicant, you pay 250 right? So it is gamified to let the small player pay less for the same service. It's just a lot of people don't take advantage of that. And the process is expensive. I mean, lawyer fees are not cheap. And, and the patent prosecution process takes years. I look at cases that are two years old, 
filed in 2020 or 2021, you know, and I'm just picking them up. So the pendency date, you know, how long a case just sits before anyone reaches it is, I want to say 18 months at the moment. So, and you're paying lawyers the whole time for that, for the responses and all that stuff. I mean, I don't know how lawyers bill, but, um, you know, I'm assuming that they're working for their time and every time, they, you know, they file a response, you're paying for it. Um, so it's not cheap, but, but again, it's the government. So if you're able to learn how to do the process yourself, you're welcome to do so. And there are plenty of tools out there for pro se ap applicants, which is an applicant that is representing themselves. And as a, as an examiner, last question before I think we pivot to the, to the speak to our guest speaker, as an examiner, you don't really get into the realm of trying to spot patent trolls. I know it's not the most polite term for that, but it is the term of art people who are sitting on patents or who are buying patents in order to just kind of stifle innovation. Right. Do you look out for that as an example? Our job is to prevent that. Our job is to prevent crappy patents from being issued. That's the only reason they pay us, right, is to make sure that it doesn't happen. But it does happen. Now, the trading of patents and buying and selling, we have nothing to do with, right? We have nothing to do with that. Um, but the, the issuing of patents, I mean, the whole job is to make sure we don't issue bad patents. That's the whole job. Yep. Because the troll part comes in when it's overreaching. Yes. Right. A, a, a good faith prosecution, Carlo, I don't think would be categorized as, as troll. I think the troll is the overreaching. And if the examiner kind of cuts the lines the right way, there won't be an opportunity. For but that, it happens. Um, it happens all the time because I, a Friday comes along and it's five o'clock and you're trying to hit your numbers and you're tired. Well, it's not just that. It's the lawyer's job to sneak want to get it past the goalie. Like, yes, that's the whole yes, game. yes. And that's a great point, too, is they call it intellectual property. OK, so I don't know if you live in a house or an apartment. It's a huge asset. Yeah. So if, if we can get that awarded, it's it's money. hundred percent. Like if your invention, I live in a neighborhood. OK, so try to picture this. My invention is my house. OK, a good patent lawyer is not going to come and write an application and put claims out, which the claims are the only thing that matters in an application too. Um, they're not going to put claims out for just my house. Why would they do that? No, they're going to go for the whole zip code. And, I, and the patent examiner is going to have to say, you don't own this whole zip code. Like, you know, Ray owns, you know, this. And the burden is on the exactly. examiner. And that's a exactly. big, important exactly. nuance to the exactly. game. The burden is on the examiner to whittle 100%. it down. 100%. And that's, that's an important Exactly. Point. That's, that's exactly. interesting. I, uh, uh, Carlo, I had invited, I think, Craig up. He had kind of a fascinating bio I wanted to. Um, chat with him, but if you want to to, to kind of continue, I want I, I want to be respectful of of your time, MFR, because I know you've got your hands full. But also give Carlo some opportunity to just have some conversation. Of um, I want to understand if if let's say in theory, because we love to talk in this space about theory, if if the if ENS were to launch a an inquiry into this unstoppable domains patent that was granted, would their argument be that this is just simply too straightforward and inelegant of a technical advancement to merit a patent? So the weird thing or is- Or would they have a patentable claim? I had a chance to look at the claims and the best way that I could understand it is that it's a Google search bar for all domains, right? Now, 
ENS does have a Google search bar for their subset of domains, ENSs, but they haven't opened it up to .crypto. They haven't opened it up to .btc. And the claims that were that were issued, you know, recite just generic searching. So my thing is, you know, two things is, did the examiner know that? And could he have used, you know, um, you know, the ENS thing to say like, hey, like, you know, this already exists within the ENS ecosystem? Or did he interpret those claims to recite not only what ENS does, but more than what ENS does, which is able to search other, you know, uh, .btcs and .cryptos? I don't know. But I guess that brings up an interesting question. If they have the ability to do it, uh, you know, search all suffixes. Yes. But they only offered to the public a subset of a narrow function. Are you entitled to like, do you have to put it out into the world to get that um, protection? It seems as if like if I were to look at it, I would say like the ENSs is more narrow than the uh, precisely. You know, it's, it's a more Absolutely. narrow application, which and then if you think about it, un unstoppable domains walked away with the whole neighborhood including ENS's house when ENS should have had their house at least. That's what it seems like. At least, at their, least house. their house. At least their house. Now, if, if ENS had the technical capabilities to search all functions, all suffixes exactly as described by Unstoppable, but they didn't let users do it and say in the hypothetical they applied for protection, does it, is there a, is there a necessary element of getting approved to, to be out in the public similar to like trademark and stuff like that? I can't speak on the trademark aspect of it. I don't know how that's yeah. fair. Maybe I'm not even speaking correctly on it, but, but you know, um, I'll kick it back to Carlo if, if that wasn't. Yeah. Correct. So this, this now begs the question, ENS is a decentralized platform. What, action could unstoppable domains bring against ENS to stifle their continued use of their discrete search application? It would seem like a bad idea. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but it would seem like a bad idea from EN for unstoppable domains to do anything to ENS if they're worried that ENS could provide documentation that they, uh, uh, you know, that provide documentation that it was known to do what Unstoppable was doing before their effective filing date. If they open those can of worms and give, you know, ENS the chance to defend themselves, that's not good. So I don't, I don't, it would seem like they would shoot themselves in the foot for doing that. But again, I don't know what their end game is. At a minimum, it would stifle future people trying to, trying to move in on their space. Maybe not the existing ENS domain, but future people who try to allocate or use this particular variant of domain search technology as it applies to blockchain yeah. domains. Look, yeah, I think, I think it's also interesting to note when you look at a patent, a granted patent, look at the PG pub, which is the, the original publication that is uh, uh, before the first round of prosecution. Normally that PG pub comes out before the case is ever touched by the examiner, unless you pay to not have it disclosed. You can always pay to play. But um, so look, look at the claims, right, uh, that was originally filed and look at the claims of the of the granted patent. And that'll tell you what they needed to add to get to the final you know, destination. And all they added, wow. all they added was like automatically verifying from the blockchain where everything is on the blockchain. 
right? Like that was the only new information from whatever prior art that the examiner had cited to, to give them the non-final in the very beginning, right? That's kind of basically ether scan. It, it's just, it's just put it. So it's like, it's clear to me that the person who was doing, it was, you know, working on the application just didn't know what they were doing. This is what it seems like to me, because if they had art to read on like the search aspect and they had art to read on, um, uh, all the other parts of the claim, except for the automatically determining, you know, that it is on the blockchain and then where everything is stored on the blockchain. I want to say those are the only two phrases that are new, right? Like you would, if, if you knew anything about the blockchain, you would know that that isn't patentable. Like it's not a patentable distinction between, you know, whatever prior art you used for the first set of claims and the newly filed amendments to those claims. That's the biggest smoking gun to me. But what, what, applications they actually used you know i didn't dive into that do you see any other areas of web3 technology nft technology because you're pretty you're pretty passionate and involved in the nft community that on the horizon look like they could be patentable man that's a good just low-hanging fruit that's sitting there that's a good question not off the top of my head but that's a really good question. Like, you know, I think about all these people who, um, you know, you know, provide tools to the space and whatnot. And I don't know if they're repurposing Web 2 tools into the Web 3 space. You know, like I'm not I'm not 100% sure. But I do know that if you build something and you have a secret sauce and people don't do it the way you do it and the way you do it is just not not known to do then most likely you have something that you could patent. I mean, that opens up a lot of potential things that are going on in this space, which are unique approaches to solving a problem to how, yeah, to how to solve a problem. That's all a patent is. That is all that is, that is the best patents, simple, elegant solutions to complex problems. And when you couple that with the fact that there's a real shortage of patent applications in the realm of web three and that this one got through um it sort of sets the table for there there might be a a real opportunity to make a land grab here in the space of course now i do know that a lot of a lot of focus is on ai and ai generated stuff uh we should host a space about that at some point in the future because right now there is talks between the government it's clear to the government that ai is not a person and we don't grant non-people rights Right. So we're not going to grant an AI rights. They're not an inventor, even if they create something, because they're not a person. And we only give rights to people. Um, but that's a debate that is happening right now um, with all this AI, you know, create generated art. You know, you can't put the AI as an inventor. But there have been cases where people have gotten cheeky and they try to, you know, list AI as an inventor to put a stand, you know, that like to try to you know, fight this battle. I don't know where it's going to go. But it's interesting, you know, interesting topic. Very cool. I couldn't agree more. It's very fascinating to me. And I'm, I, I don't even know what, I, what side I'm rooting for because you talk about the benefits of open source and then the, the, the benefits of protection. And I go both ways. And then the opportunity for a land grab or like competitive advantage through ip gamesmanship um just throws a whole wrench in the, in the whole market Ray, think about it if you go to chat gpt or any of the ai you know things and you tell it to 
uh, draw me an MFR that is in the rainforest that has one eye and a peg leg, right? And it draws it for you. Can you copyright that? Like, well, the the copyright just got pulled. We're going to talk about it Friday. But the girl who put did the uh, comic from Mid Journey was granted copyright, and then it was pulled. And I think that it turns on the amount of human creativity, and we can define that. You know, Jess, and she's great at at that. So we're going to have her Friday. Wow. Okay. I would um, love to. Yeah. Love but to hear think that. about think about this. I want to I want to know your your take. Not from a legal or examiner yeah. point of view, professional point of view, but a DJ like was is this CCO ahead of its time? Is that the key oh. to unlocking this? Like, where do you see that fitting into the picture? Because you have this professional background and this connection to to MFers, yes. and I just want to like, what are your wow. feelings there? All right, if I can speak freely and we're speaking among friends, okay? I think a lot of people are going to jail, Ray. Okay, I think a lot of people are going to jail. I think a lot of stuff that has gone through and, you know, things that were promised and that hasn't fall, fallen, you know, broken promises that haven't been met, uh, utility that people are looking for that, you know, eventually people, you know, we're going to d- not care about or, you know, not build for anymore. Uh, staking rewards that you get for holding an NFT that's probably going to mess you up with the SEC or the FTC. I don't know. I don't know, Ray. I'm not a lawyer. Okay. The point is, when it comes to MFers, it's just art. It's just CCO. You know, if you want something done, the community does it. You know, uh, the 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 contract is in the community's name. Uh, we hold the you know the keys to the contract. We hold the treasury. Um, I think the CCO model is the path of least resistance for a lot of NFT projects. Um, I think Web three NFT PFP uh, IP is really weak you know i don't see personally you know changing the the shape of the mouth or the eyes are closed or open you know is or the background everything's the same but the background is different you know really is strong ip that's worth arguing over so if it's not worth anything and it's just perceived value then why not just let it you know go be in the public now what does that do you know we, we already talked about nfts you know are non-fungible the contract's already out there we know which token is which token so yeah you can copy the project but i can still tell that it's not the same contract it's not the same asset because the nft is not just the picture and if the picture is out in the public it lets everyone proliferate the me you know it allows everyone to create derivatives in their own merch is there a connection between proliferating the meme and dollars we is there a business one, model here nope. or is it a community? One model? MFR is equal to one MFR. That's the mantra. <laughs> one MFR is equal to one MFR. Okay, cool. So we're talking about like sociology and like grouping of people and yes. friendships and relationships. Yes. No no utility. That's, I'm there. No handout to the founder. No handout to the founder. No founder, no leadership. leadership. Like, we are leaders. like he left. You want something done? Like, you are go do it. Right? If you need help, we'll help you. As best we can. Can that be transformed? I hear you, and that's awesome. Last question: Can that model be transformed into a business model? Does proliferating the meme bring value back to the provenance of the holder with the original problem? So, so the way I think about it is, if MFers, the the stick figure, become very popular and become something that is well recognized, people will want the digital flex of having the original token. 
I think back to your original point that if the flex matters, then you make it culturally relevant and then the provenance connects it to your token. You don't need a patent, copyright, trademark. You don't need a lawyer exactly. or a court. Exactly. Now, the court, now, what gets interesting and when Jess comes up, I'm, I, I'm planning on asking her these questions is, you know, MFers have a CCO project in, in that the art is CCO, but is the term MFers, can it be trademarked, right? Like, can the collection be is there any uh, moat that we could build around the community that makes sense, right? Because obviously the art is in the public domain. You can do whatever you want with it. But is the name in the public domain? That's not really clear. Is, you know, the, the font writing, is it in the public domain? Is, is, is the brand, like, is there any way to protect the MF for brand? I don't know the answer to that question. But we're going to find out when we ask Jessica. And that's such a, that's such a, continuing debate in this space because it's it 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 advances centralized ideals with this uh dichotomy of decentralized ideas and no one should own anything has sort of been the the developing principle around this this decentralized notion and when you start to control what can be done with ip that that sparks a debate in and of itself in this space. hundred percent. And and things are born with IP. It's just the question is, do you want to enforce it or not? Like, I guess when works of art, right, are are born with a copyright, from my understanding, right? The fact that they exist, you know, you have rights over that piece of work if you're the creator of that work. The question is, are you going to limit other people's use of that? Uh, you know, it seems, you know, in the Mephers case, that's not, you know, that that's not the case. And it's worked out in the Yuga case. They say that's not the case. And it's worked out for them, too. So I think the optionality is important and valuable. And the technology that we have is kind of enabling that optionality. Well, let me, let me, so thank you for the time. No, I've got one question for you. Is is the Yuga IP worth its weight in gold or salt or ETH or whatever you want to say? Is it worth it to you? I don't. I don't have a big um, Yuga uh, asset holding, but the idea, I, my fund, like we didn't, we don't have any apes. But the idea is, when they first minted, and they were the first project to say that the holder gets IP rights, they didn't take the time to define what that meant. They didn't take the time to put out a specific license till months later. I think. And the market ate it up. Like people who have never, who didn't know what IP stood for, were telling, like preaching the value that they were getting from the IP rights that were undefined and potentially unenforceable. So, like in that respect, yes, because it drove the price of the asset. Have I seen it leveraged in the real world the way it was talked about when it first came out? Not yet, but. Like that's that's neither here nor there. The the people want it, man, and I I, I, I get it. I can't understand. I get it. it. But go ahead. All right. Let my last question then is: Okay, if me and you both are uh, the license holders of these Yuga assets, and uh, Carlo came in and he just ripped our picture and created a burger restaurant or whatever, just ripped our picture completely. Who defends the rights? Is it me and you, Ray, versus Carlo? Or is it me and you through Yuga to Carlo? 
Do we know? It's, it's, it's up in the air, and we don't know, and it's difficult. And, and Ira's in the audience. He's, he's explained it well that Yuga's probably in the strongest position to, to, to dictate that license and, like, the holder of the NFT. And, and then, again, if the NFT is stolen or hacked or misplaced or lost, there's all or burned. Does does nobody have that IP now? Like, it's it's almost foolish. Ira, if you want to jump in, thanks for joining. Welcome, friend. Hey, how you doing? Um, this is not legal advice, um, <laughs> but uh, in any event, I'm not I'm not going to answer that question specifically. But maybe you could deduce the answer from what I'm going to say. Um, with a lot of these PFP projects, the project itself will retain ownership of the copyright and they'll give out licenses, usually non-exclusive licenses, sometimes commercial licenses. Um, and there's two types of licenses, copyrights and trademarks. It looks like Yuga is giving out a copyright license, but not a trademark license. Uh, and if somebody were to go ahead, say, and uh, use the PFP picture of somebody who is a licensee from the project, someone who owns one of the NFTs, that person would not be able to walk into court and sue over it because the only folks who could sue over the copyrights are the copyright owners or an exclusive licensee. And based upon at least one interpretation of the Yuga agreement, uh, so you would say that they're not exclusive licensees and therefore they could do nothing about it. So then you'd say, all right, you know, and, and lawyers could argue this both ways. Then you'd say, all right, Yuga, you could sue for me. And then they'll throw their hands up in the air and say, well, we didn't register the copyrights. So without doing that in the United States, we do not have standing to get the keys to the courthouse to sue for you. Um, and so you and uh, you and I are, are out of luck. And so, you know, there is there's definitely going to be what we'll call consumer protection issues going down the line. Uh, if someone's going to go ahead and retain the copyrights, as much as I love Yuga and their lawyers, it would seem like there should be some minimal effort to either get the copyright in a jurisdiction that has no registration requirements so you can still have standing in the U.S. to get injunctive relief, or to do some minimal registration so you can go do something about it. But if people are going to be buying up these PFPs thinking they're getting something scarce because copyright's attached to it, and therefore I could preclude others from using it, and that project doesn't even get a copyright registration to me i start moving over to what uh, my uh, friend examiner here is saying and saying well what's the point um i mean that seems like to be a tremendous selling point um you could even license the copyright for commercial purposes as an nft owner so you have the freedom to use but you don't have the power to exclude so what's the point and so i'll leave I'll leave you with that. That's a great point, Ira. Thanks for putting it that way. Uh, it, in your opinion, this is just an opinion-based question. Which one is more uh, uh, effective? I guess. Like, I guess when it comes to floor price, you know, you guys got a lot of money, and you know, the floor price between MFers or all CCO projects and and you guys. I mean, it's it's a big, big difference. You guys definitely winning that by a long shot, but. You know, is it better to be exclusive and and kind of make it seem like you have to pay to have these things? Or is it better 
to let it, you know, release it out to the world, let everyone use it, make it popular, make it cool, make it funny, and then drive the man back to the original collection, which is the birthplace of all that funny stuff that we've been doing. What, what, what do you think is more effective? Well, I've, I've uh, I would say it depends upon the use case in my career, you know, especially when I did work for EFF back in the nineties, you know, um, and, you know, I've been involved in both, you know, creative common stuff, shareware stuff, and also highly valuable video game copyright stuff. Um, if I had to say what is, and this is not an opinion, but if I had to just argue what might be better for someone who wants to avoid being accused of a rug pull, CCO all the way, baby. Hey. You know, basically just disclaim any, any um, you know, responsibility or IP or anything. And so that's very, that's a, a decent way to go if you're worried about rug pulls or wanting to stop and, and go work for Google or whatever. But if, you're, if you want to go ahead and preserve the integrity of your ecosystem to stop folks using it for porn and disgusting things, you can't CCO it. You're going to have to go ahead and retain the IP so you can stop extremely bad use cases and disgusting use cases and keep the integrity of the community afloat. So you got to decide what you want to go do. But if I was an artist and I cared about my reputation and my legacy, I would not CCO it at all. Uh, I would get registrations and I would pick and choose who the worst folks are and have them stop it so they don't infect the entire community with disgusting stuff. So that's kind of my quick answer. So your answer to, to recap would be to get the protection, but then selectively use that protection against the people who are not going towards the path you see for your project. Yeah, if I, if I was an artist, yeah. um, I could see scenarios where CCO might be good for membership-based communities or ones where where someone who's involved doesn't want to have the concern about the consistent upkeep or be accused of a rug pull right um so it just depends upon which route you want to go that's a very fair and we haven't and what's interesting about that ira is we haven't seen that happen yet in this space where people have co-opted these cco projects like mfers um and like wrecked guy to deploy them in a direction of hate speech or in any sort well, of Well, we saw the Pepe and the alt-right. Yes, wow. we did. And that's we a, did. that's an interesting example, but I didn't want to jump in and cut you off. Go ahead, Colonel. No, I mean, that's an interesting observation because that, that for many people, is the first association that they have with Pepe, and they don't, they don't understand the yeah. arc of its, of, its, of its creation. And it seems that that exploitation, if you want to call it, or that 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 derivative of the Pepe happened before the Pepe had value. Am I fair in saying that, Janko? Was the meme valuable before it got co-opted in that alt-right sense? That's a complex yeah. question. That documentary really gets into the story, but I would say the dollar values that we saw today in 2021 weren't touched, but the cultural value to those who knew about it was up there. I'll tell and, 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 and the value to the artist maybe as well. I'll, I'll tell ahead, you Paul. this. Well, you know, you, the, thing, Have you, the thing that you got to uh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say the punk six, five, two, nine memes. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, uh, with that collection It's probably one of the hottest collections out right now. I minted a Pepe this morning, right. Um, that was featured in that collection and it would only be featured in that collection, which is a very popular collection 
since his CCO. MFers have been in that collection. Rec guys have been in that collection, right? And that collection has seen, has more volume, has more eyes, more institutional investors on it. You know what asset I haven't seen? Any board ape asset because they've restricted themselves. They've blocked themselves off from being culturally relevant in order to provide some sort of, you know, fictitious, in my opinion, you know, value. Well, they've blocked them off to that kind of evolution of just this osmosis culture taking. It's it's like the, the community picking up the mantle, yep. all of those things that you've yep. championed. They've made them. They've just said, we're going to make ourselves culturally relevant by like having a Snoop Dogg and Eminem. Yeah, Examiner, it comes down to what I've seen uh, over the years as to how folks are wired sometimes, um, you know, and I've made both arguments. Um, you're making one argument because you're wired that way, and it's a beautiful argument. It sounds beautiful when you say it. But I can make another argument saying that, you know, Leroy Neiman or Andy Warhol, or, you know, Leroy Neiman has his estate. He passed away. He's been able to now provide for his family for years because of copyright protection, because you have to license things and because people can't use it, you know, to disparage him and things like that. So, so you could take either side of this and make it sound like it's poetry. It's true. It just depends upon how you're wired in your context. No, that is definitely true. But when it comes to the, the thing of are these, you know, tokens, uh, you know, that can be regulated by the SEC, you know, I look at. I look at one of one art and I say, no way, right? Like, no way, you know, one of one art or even one art where it's like a thousand editions of the same thing. I'm like, that's just art, right? Like, you're not, there's no utility by this. You're just buying it for the sake of buying it, right? From an artist. Then you have PFP collections, which are more like fraternities and communities. And then you have two things. Either the community picks up the slack and does everything or one founder or a group of founders or a team at the top is doing stuff for everyone else, you know? Then you have like the access tokens, that are just like alpha passes or tickets and stuff like that. You know, uh, I just, I just, I worry about the stuff that where founders are, you know, saying like, Hey, we're going to be doing this. We're going to be building for you for a while. I just, I, I personally worry how sustainable that is and how much trouble that they could possibly get into once, you know, they're doing stuff to drive value back to the project opposed to you buying a project for the sake of liking it or for the sake, you know, or, or you know, with no promises, you're just buying it to buy it agreed and not, not only that but i'm kind of like and maybe we got to take some action right here through the you know through our group or whatever but i just don't know why we don't have a, a creative commons set of i don't know incorporate by reference a disclaimer that every project should link to in its metadata that says that we make no promises beyond you know, the NFT that you've gotten, we don't promise any warranty. We, you know, there's a full limitation of liability. You know, we don't warrant that we have copyrights. We don't warrant that we're going to help you in a suit. There's no promises you relied on. And everyone incorporates that by reference to make it so that the entire thing at least has defensibility on anti-rug pull. Um, and so everyone, you know, that's probably something that the entire industry should link to. And it's metadata. Because at least it gives lawyers who help these projects a fighting chance when they don't have like uh, NFT license agreements or, or, or ones that are good enough. So, you know, that's kind of like my response to you, Examiner. I see that being going viral as like a copy pasta 
where like you write a list, like you just write that statement out and then the comments are all the same copied pasta of your statement. And then it gets kind of viral to let the information get out there that like, this is a statement that we're going to stand behind. And then hopefully enough people see it. And start <laughs> you, know, you know what we do? You know, examine what we do. What? We create an NFT of it. Okay. And then everyone incorporates that NFT by reference. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So they incorporate references. They'll, you know, in the patent world, uh, you walked in a little late. I work for the patent office. Uh, I'm a primary examiner there and, uh, which is an opportunity to leave right now. But, um, but yeah, people will put a whole list of applications just incorporated by reference. And like all of the stuff that's in the previous application is essentially in the, that, that's that child application. Um, even though all they said was this is the application number and it's hereby incorporated by reference. It's literally just like a copy paste of everything that's in that disclosure now fits into your reference. It's a beautiful lawyer way of sneaking stuff in. We're sneaky sometimes. That's why they pay all the big bucks. I appreciate the time, Mo, Ira. Thanks for jumping up, Carlo. That was a great conversation. We learned a ton. Absolutely. We'll we'll do it. I mean, we have those things. We should just circulate like one draft and everybody kind of add their best notes to it. And then we put it out, give credit where credit's due, and then let folks kind of use it. Exactly. You know, it'd be funny. You copyright it. <laughs> <laughs> the the height of irony. We're gonna have we, we'll have Ray, we'll have Ray copyright it. No, yeah, no, sir. no. We're gonna have Chat GPT generated for us. <laughs> well, no, I I want to actually have it something we can still put stand behind. Uh, I, but like, I, uh, I, know, I think you're right. We can have. Uh, Punk five one 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 something uh, apply for the, the copyright. That would be so great. Great conversation as Thanks always. Thanks a lot, Mo, for joining. Thank you for me. having. And we're gonna um, Thursday nights. He and Jess do a great um, conversation about IP law that I need to start joining. Uh, no, um, so so actually, let me let me take a step back. So Jess was just found. So every Thursday. Are my, not, um, are, are my notes yeah, your wrong? Your notes a little wrong. So on Thursdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, we host a Web3 version of Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live, okay? Um, it's called Daddy Issues. Um, normally, there's like an introduction. We run commercials that we make. They're all parody. Everything's parody. Last week, we had a Judge Mo Brown. Uh, segment where I was a you know I played a judge and we had a court case between two people who uh, minted a project and uh, did not like what they got. It's just all fun and games. We do live skits. We have uh, recorded assets. Um, we run like Sappy Seals commercials to help pump up their floor price. We try to poke fun of like everything that's relevant uh, that week. Um, it's mostly that about fifty percent of it's recorded. Fifty um, percent of it's live. Um, we're in season two and, uh, we're just trying to get more people to know about it. Uh, come just check it out. And if you like it, just play it. We, we normally record them. Um, we are going to need some lawyer help eventually. Eventually I'm going to be reaching out to y'all because, um, right now we, you know, uh, a lot of our assets, I mean, we're not musicians and stuff. So a lot of the music that we pick and stuff, we don't necessarily got licenses for, but, uh, we'll pay the piper when we uh, need to. Um, but we are fixing, you know, trying to fix that. We're trying to uh, become an entity. Uh, we're getting sponsors for next season. And uh, I had no idea. That's a lot. It's a lot. Good dude. For you. It's a lot. Congrats. Thank you. That sounds really cool because, like, 
there are common references and Josh and I have talked about this, like there's a real space for a national or for like a, a, a um, mad magazine or an SNL type yeah. commentary, because there's mutual references that will all oh, yeah. like the the seals commercial. I'm laughing. <laughs> just thinking about it. That's awesome. It's hard enough just putting together a law, a law topical show an hour a day. I can't imagine what will go into the prep for that with pre-recorded no stuff. Just, justice did, did not inform me correctly. I'm very. It's sorry. okay. It's okay, dude. We would love to have you uh, commercial for for this, um, and we can run you a funny commercial. <laughs> uh, we did it for a Someone created a game for MFers uh, called a Mefer Blaster. It's a real simple online game. Okay, commercial for her. Uh, we run it every now and, and then. And then we really use it, Carlo, and it brings value I mean, you, back. Yeah, exactly. And it's CCO, baby. You can use it whichever way it's you want. It's CCO, baby. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, we would love to have you all there. We'd have, love to have you participate as guests. Um, just come around. You know, we, we have something called FAFO, which is fuck around and find out. We hope that you do that with us. Um, and we're always, you know, we're here. You were here. Ray shoots me a DM, dude. I'm here at a you know, drop of a dime. I'm happy to be here. I love That's it. That's awesome. Oh, it's great to thank connect you. with you, Mo. Thank you so much. Anytime. And thank you to everyone who joined us today. That was fascinating. Thanks a lot, man. Back at it tomorrow, Jenko. Catch y'all tomorrow. Have a great day. Absolutely. And then Thursday's a copyright discussion. Let's do Let's it. Let's do it. All right. Peace, everyone. Thank you. Peace. Thank you.